0: Hi, my name is Matthijs. I'm the CTO at Accelerated. My favorite coffee is a, a double espresso from uh, Ethiopian Yergeshev beans from the local roaster here in Delft.
1: David Ponte, It's been a while, man. Cuanto yes, tiempo, amigo? Uh, hace un rato. That's it. It's been a little bit. It's been a little bit. Dude, I'm stoked to have you back co-hosting here. It was yeah, a nice know. little surprise that you just jumped on. What were your takeaways? We just talked to Matias, and that was pretty epic. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I think one of the biggest
2: takeaways was, uh, I think, how nuanced some of these design decisions can be. How much it's, like how, how often the answer is, it depends. <laughs> I feel like a takeaway for me is that that, that makes this space, again, just a reminder. It reminds me of how challenging it is that there is, it's very hard to standardize right now. Um, I think even at the tooling level it's hard to standardize right now Um, and I think that makes it particularly tricky for people trying to get into the space Um, and I think it's awesome that there are some people who have I guess like growing up all this was happening uh, have been able to find this kind of needed, well-needed area um, and, and obviously there's businesses out there that are trying to meet those needs by hire, finding good talent. I know that's a common problem, finding good mm-hmm. talent, especially within the ML Ops space, because sometimes they're more on the uh, ML research side, have very little experience with the deployment and the infrastructure or vice versa. Sometimes they just know infrastructure and know very little about ML and some of the nuances there. Uh, so that was one thing I, I felt like over and over I heard how, how nuanced uh, things can be. and. And very rarely do we get these like blanket answers that always apply. Uh, I, I I think we're there's a desire to move in that direction though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard that from him speaking about you know we 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 try but it's it's hard. Um, so yeah, that's that's one I could
1: think of. Dude, I really liked when he was breaking down the monitoring piece and he was talking about how for him it's such a headache and a nuance to have a tool that is specifically for machine learning monitoring or data monitoring or just model monitoring and then you got to go into your data dog or your whatever software monitoring mm. and he was like there still needs to be a lot of work that happens in that space which of course it surprised me because it feels like out of any other tooling area in the op space there's so many that yeah. are in that space that space same. is so crowded same and so you um, you have him saying like yeah even with all this crowdedness there's not what I'm looking for. It made me think like for
2: all you model deployment tools out there, just add some you know some some load balancing algorithms or you know <laughs> add the round robin or at least oh, yeah. traffic or something. Uh, I this. This must already exist. There should be a way to integrate them. So yeah, exactly. I, I and I, I know I would like that as well. So that's that's awesome.
1: Exactly, exactly. So let's do something new that we're starting right now. It is the first time. I'm gonna go over a few of the cool things that are happening in the community. That people have posted and i want to start out by mentioning that we have a best of slack newsletter so if you want to get the top threads that are happening in the mlops community slack delivered directly to your inbox sign up for that you can find the link to the description below or to that in the description below and we've also got a few cool things that are happening so there's this thing called AI ML Flow. They're building a tool that mounts the ML Flow logs and enables an AIM based super performance UI for metrics, image, and other ML metadata comparisons. That is called M- AI ML Flow. It's produced by the Amy AIM, Flow people. And then we've also got uh, some. Great meetups that are happening in the model observability space and explainability space. Speaking of monitoring, we were talking about it before. Get on there. You've got Arise that has Drift happening. They are interviewing different people in the machine learning space that are doing cool stuff. And they talk about what they're missing and what they're looking for in observability. And then you've got Fiddler is having an AI explained model monitoring best practices in real life that's going down and so check all these out enjoy that's all we've got for now oh last one nanny ml dude another monitoring one it's monitoring all day today nanny ml just came out of stealth they're in product hunt you can go check them out see what they're doing and how they're doing it that's it that's all we got let's jump into this conversation and thanks again David for joining me it's great to have you back man yeah absolute pleasure delighted to be here what was your best confinement by over the last two years since we went on lockdown Jeez, that's a really difficult question
0: um my best confinement buy over the last two years. You could have prepped me for this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I
1: see all kinds of scuba gear yes, behind okay, you. Was yes, it anything I have been like buying
0: that? and doing a lot of scuba. I, um, I was in Croatia last year for a technical diving course, which essentially mm. means going deep and for long. That was a lot of fun. And um, my instructor there ha- gave me one sort of free intro workshop on underwater scooters and that has been the most expensive free workshop i've ever had in my life oh yeah. now i have i had to have underwater scooters after that it's just so much fun to cruise around you just go so much faster than you're uh, than you're used to Dude, cruising over definitely. the wrecks and stuff yeah that sounds like so much fun how deep yeah. yeah. can you go with uh, the scooter the scooter goes up to 100 meters but i don't I <laughs> go up to that's 50. Pretty, yeah, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, yeah, That's yeah. That's, that, that gets deep. Gets yes. deep. yeah, I mean, 50 is, well, deep enough for me. There's a lot of cool wrecks in the 50 meter range that uh, I'm happy to explore for now.
1: All right, so you're doing all kinds of cool stuff when it comes to ML and ML ops. You are the CTO right now of a company that I just found out is related to some friends of ours that go data-driven Correct. because you have the same... Partner, parent, parent company. I guess uh, it's, um, and so maybe we should just start with a clear idea of what it is you're doing, what your day-to-day looks like, and yeah. how you are implementing machine learning and ML ops. Yeah,
0: that's a really good question. So, um, Accelerated as a company essentially is a a training slash consulting firm. So we grew out of Go Data Driven in a way, in, and uh, specifically in the Go Data Driven has a lot of very senior talent uh, of consultants that do short-time gigs and then very often at a client afterwards they asked like hey couldn't that consultant just you know stay or come on our payroll and uh, the answer always was no of course because it doesn't work like that Um, and then people thought you know there's two sort of problems we can solve we can solve the staying at clients and we can give a place to slightly less experienced folks who are still good but need to know a bit more before they can actually really call themselves senior. Let's start a new company that focuses exactly on that. Um, I joined at the beginning, and essentially what we do is we attract talent, um, we train them uh, before they started the client as well as during a year, uh, with the intent of them actually transferring to the client's internal, uh, internal team at the end of it all sort of to pick up the things that the the driven consultants build, for example, um, and just have a sustainable
1: growth option for,
0: uh, for those companies.
1: So there's some interesting things when it comes to like the training that you're giving. And Mm -hmm. I would love to hear what is hot right now, as far as training goes, what is something that people are asking for?
0: Huh? Yeah. So, in terms of the ML space, I think it has been relatively constant over the last couple of years. There's a lot of demand from candidates into doing interesting neural net based things, preferably at medical uh, companies. That's something that we, that we see a lot, um, which is a bit of a shame because of course, on the other side, there's hardly any medical companies really doing much with neural net based things. Um, So we kind of often have to disappoint people when they want to do that. Um, In terms of data engineering and sort of this whole data landscape, I think that the hottest tools probably are still Kafka, Spark, uh, those kinds of things. Like the typical things that you would have heard of if you're sort of adjacent to the domain, but not deeply in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm. Are people also interested on in the
2: ML app space, like let's say the yes. orchestration, the deployment side of things as well?
0: Yes, uh, that's something that we've definitely seen come more and more into play, also because it's something that we have cared a lot about from the beginning of the program that we've set up. Um, but most of the time, people don't know that much tooling coming in. Right? It's it's more about okay, yeah, I've built models here and there. Um, but I probably, they probably never actually deployed them or had them had deployed by other teams or just in, in, you know, very, um, bare bones kinds of ways and hacking it until it works essentially.
1: Yeah. And so there's something, I know you can't get into too much detail because it is yeah. proprietary or it is a uh, top secret as we could say. And this message will self-destruct after five seconds, stuff like that. But you talked to me about scaling from like a couple thousand models in production Uh to a couple what, like a hundred thousand models in production. Yeah. Like, what is that even? That's, that's insane to me. And can you talk us through whatever you Mm -hmm. can tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a client where, where one of our
0: um, one of our consultants was at that moment. And uh, essentially, um, what they had was a big network of sensors. And, or essentially, no, actually it w- wasn't their sensors, it was sensors from their clients that they ingested data from. And what they built, or what they were building, was a platform that allowed um for very easy monitoring of all these sensors and you could think of like sensors in in infrastructure those kinds of uh those kinds of things so what they essentially wanted to do was train a time series model um that used data from the sensor itself as well as data from somewhat nearby sensors that showed interesting correlations with them um to predict within percentiles what the um what the expected values were going to the next couple of hours in the future. And what they found was that because these sensors were so different, um, each of them actually needed an individually trained model, like from the same blueprint, of course, but still an individually trained and deployed model. Um, They got that working as a proof of concept. They ran on, on Azure with Azure Functions, but they actually ran into sort of the concurrency limits of Azure Functions itself. Uh, they already did like one or two support tickets to Microsoft saying, hey, could, could we get more concurrent functioning invocations? And at that point, it was mostly the bill at the end of the month that started to be uh, prohibitive. Um, but there were all kinds of, you know, already interesting challenges at the 3000 model mark, such as, you know, deploying a new version of the code required all the models to be retrained sort of synchronously that works with 3000 and it was a manual job as well, but at at the level of 100,000, that just doesn't, you know, doesn't compute anymore. So, um, there were a lot of sort of organizational challenges in how do we do releases and how do we sort of do that safe and in a low risk way that we had to, that we had to solve along the way, essentially.
1: It's funny you mentioned that because I'm going back through some of the cool stuff you've written in slack and i saw one that was talking about how it's like low risk releases was very important for you can you break that down a little bit more and what you mean by that yeah so whenever i
0: go to a client engagement i always ask like when it's emelobs related right I, i always ask um if we have a cool idea for something that might improve the model what will hold us back from getting that into production today or tomorrow and for me that is probably the most important thing about MLOPS as a, as a movement or as a culture right how do we how do we get rid of barriers to to do that and i think a very large barrier to release very often is uh, not being able to do it safely right meaning um how do we can can we even get stuff in production in automated ways is often step step one right or is it a manual thing that people need to need to do right in the right order and if we get it in production and there's something wrong does it break some downstream system or does it corrupt downstream data or is it like real user impact i think that a lot of you know especially the, the whole online inference type models really benefit from a way to say okay yeah I, I have this thing running but maybe as a shadow deployment somehow right or maybe I, I want to release it only for a subset of the sensors in this case of this this infrastructure uh, this infrastructure business or a subset of users and i think that's a part where you know you see some tooling here and there but i've never really found it good enough never offered me the flexibility that i really needed to um to do it in the way that I would want it to. So you often end up building your own, running your own there. Out of curiosity, is the cha- are the
2: limitations you see in these existing tools because of the scale? Or mm. is it something fundamental in the API, just like what features it offers?
0: Yeah, very often, uh, you know, you see you see canary testing very often as a, um, as a feature of a lot of these tools. But then when you look at it, you see them do random know, random assignments for each request that's sort of the default and i don't think there's ever been a case where i wanted to do random canary testing at the very least you want to make sure that a single user at least gets a consistent experience or a single you know a single entity that interacts with your system gets a consistent experience and doesn't hop back between models um you know that's sort of th- that's that's the minimum and usually there's ways to counteract this with headers or cookies or you know but you always have to dig and generally you have to dig in the code base to actually find these rather than in documentation which i find odd but that's a majority thing i would say yeah I, I i see what you're saying that
2: feels like that's a pretty common need right like maybe i don't want to do random i want to do round robin or I, sh- I need some sort of flexibility yeah. in how i choose to route it to the service or load balance right and i feel like a lot of them you'd just be happy if you could even get there and then just do canary right uh, so maybe mm-hmm. that maybe that's kind of as far as we've come so far and now as more and more use cases are coming out but i, I, as, I as i'm saying that i feel like no i there's web service deployments have been around for some time yes. yeah uh and that's where the, the the funny thing is um i often hear you know model deployment is like an already solved problem Yes and no, right? Like, yes, there's lots of standardized tooling. It's kind of the same thing. But no, in the sense of, like, there's still lots of gaps in the MLOps space between what is available and, let's say, pure web development. Like, there's lots of tooling that makes it really nice. And I, I kind of see a trend where a lot of these libraries are now going more towards, like, what's that that Python library that just came out in that you could do it in the web, in a browser or something like that. Oh, like, yeah. It's like that trend to make it more just na- web native, or I don't know what the wording is for that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I agree. There is definitely some, like, it's mature, but to a, a certain point.
0: Yeah. And and the one feature that I always want out of these uh, these ML inference things is something that a lot of web deployment tools will just never support. And that's sort of like auto-batching of, uh, of requests coming in. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that, a good one. That just seems like something that should be, you know, almost default in every ML inference tool. Then again, I have to also say that I would generally want those more on a load balancer level than on the application level, Um, just to sort of make sure that you don't have unneeded latency, right? If you do auto batching and you have low periods of, of data coming in, of requests coming in, your load balancer round robins to different servers, they all stay active, so they might not scale down, and also all of them are waiting until they're... their their batching queue fills or times out because it never fills up because everything goes round robin and i think that the the i think there's some market for uh maybe a smarter load balancer for ml that can handle some of this canary testing and shadow deployments and batching this feels very similar sorry
2: just to also the need for a scheduler ba- a batch scheduler there's already some work in like the kubernetes space mm. where the existing the default scheduler is not optimal uh you mm. want to batch them right and and you already see kind of a need for like it's i guess like but this also feels like the high performance computing area right like where they were thinking about how do we get something really big to work so maybe that's what we need more interdisciplinary uh, like, let's leverage what has already been done and, and yeah. apply to the ml Ops space because it seems like that what you were discussing about moving it to a load balancing layer right or, or I guess yeah like uh, I'm trying to I'm thinking kubernetes but uh, like the ingress or something there I feel like that's that's not an ml specific problem that feels like a very general kind of uh, infrastructure problem but when <clears throat> you need that in an existing ml tool it kind of you f- it, like I feel like we, we, and this has been my experience, I, I often feel like we conflate the issues. Where it's like, oh, this is not exactly an ML issue where I need a data scientist to be that much involved. This is more like traditional infrastructure systems engineering yeah. where we need to figure out how to organize all this stuff. But the model is, is like such a small, if almost insignificant portion of that. But what you brought up earlier with like routing, that's I, that I feel like is an ML-specific problem because depending on like, I guess like, it it, it, it it there are problems where you need someone uh, with domain expertise to be involved, but there are others, and lots of them in my experience where you don't it's just like some kind of vanilla infrastructure issue
0: that you're dealing mm-hmm. with yeah yeah, and, and we do have the tendency to reinvent some of these these infrastructure components for specifically m l which is a bit of a shame yeah.
2: Exactly, yeah, that's kind of what I, I feel too, like there's a lot, sometimes I think we, 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 we're we better off learning from what has already been there and trying to figure out a way to leverage that mm. rather than, you know, creating everything from scratch all the time, which sometimes it feels like it, but then it's not. <laughs> a lot of these existing tools are just like, a, a, they, they they are inspired from something from before. Um, mm. Well, at least that's my opinion from what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, you see a lot of cycles as well, to be honest, in the, yeah, I'm, you, you want to ask a question, Demetrius, or...
1: No, I, l- um, I want to okay. uh, let you guys keep going. Sure. I was just going to interject yeah. and say that thing that David was looking for, the, ju- the browser-based uh, Python was called PyScript. Right. That's all I wanted yeah, to say. That's a good one.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see some of these cyclical things in terms of how we, how we tend to solve problems. Um, if you go back, I don't know, is it 10 years to like Uzi and Azkaban times for Hadoop scheduling? Um, Sounds everything, about right. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. I'm afraid it's it's about that time. Um, everything was XML based, right? And, and he saw, uh, you know, people finding out that that Uzi wasn't good enough, so they built other things, or they built stuff on top. And at a certain point, people started figuring out, like, oh, um, wait, maybe maybe for these complex dependencies and these complex graph things, a markup language is not the right. Tool to to define them. Let's start writing them all in code, right? And then we get Airflow and, and Luigi and you know, Dexter and Prefect and what have you now. But then somehow we we got turned around again because Argo is, is YAML based, and you know I don't have anything against Argo. It's it's quite a nice tool, but if you look at the YAML that you sometimes need to to do stuff, it's horrendous, of course. And so I'm curious, like, what is the next? What's the next? pipeline tool going to be? I, I feel like it drag and drop. Like, that's another trend mm. I notice
2: where it's low-code environments, which I, I personally like... It, it I don't like them because I can't do what I'd like to normally do, mm-hmm. and, I, and I can't play tinker. I'm very limited by this API, and that feels like more I'm just learning some tool rather than learning something that applies beyond this tool. Mm-hmm. I like... That's why I like working with lots of open-source tooling, because a lot of them are based on these general concepts that apply versus, like, this super-specific tool. So. That's no. why it's not great, but I do feel like it does make people productive, uh, particularly data scientists when they like to iterate quickly, like drag and drop. For certain things, is nice. Like I'm thinking of like Azure Data Factory and the Azure Stack allows you to do ETL very simply, drag and drop, you know, put together some pipelines. But again, you run into lots of issues because uh, if you, let's say if you were to build a tool like that, that sounds like a lot to maintain, keep mm-hmm. all these connectors up to date, like that just would be a nightmare for someone like me. But that's what these tools have to do to keep up, to stay relevant because it, it, they, they offer just enough functionality to make you productive, but not enough to allow you to customize it for what you really yeah. need. They offer just
0: enough to get you, get you hooked. Right. Yeah. that That's sort of the issue. And then migrating out of them is a nightmare. Um,
1: so. Yeah. I mean, you have played with a lot of tools, right? And do you feel like that's a general pattern that, you try and avoid and that's why you lean more towards like building it yourself
0: um well let me preface that you, you don't want to build everything yourself for sure but in general when i evaluate a tool i do evaluate how easy it is to get out of it again and right? how how core is this um this component to the thing that i'm building and, and what if i don't like it two years from now um that's also, in general, I, I don't like frameworks. I like libraries for the same reason that David just mentioned. Frameworks tie you into a lot of things and moving out for just a part of it can be can be quite difficult. Whereas, you know, if you have a bunch of libraries that don't overlap too much, you can generally just rip, rip one part out and, and bring one part back in. Especially in a domain where I think in our domain, we don't know what the interfaces should be yet, right? Um, if you think about web app development, well, that's been, you know, your free tier architecture or your however many tier architecture web app with your database and your middleware and stuff, that's all been sort of solved up to a point. And then each of those components can do, you know, can be more, um, is by definition more replaceable because the interface is at least clear and it's clear what the component does. But nowadays you see, you know, bias or f- model fairness tooling that also handles your deployments and um, that feels wrong. Yeah, I got to agree, I like I, someone, I forget who, who in
2: the community brought this up, but it's like you, you see like the data hub or the data engineering space. They don't, you know, for like a data warehouse tool, you don't see them add all these other tools into it like visualization and all this stuff like they keep it separate. But in MLOps, we like to do that. We like to just everything in one thing, which feels like it sounds good, but from an engineering perspective, it causes a ton of headaches uh particularly the ability to extend it maintain it like all these different things that you don't you don't think about when you're just eager to use it but uh they become a pain down like somewhere down the line like you're mentioning it's very important to think how will i have what do i need to do to get out of it what's the cost like how what's the you know what's it going to
0: take Hey, I'm Vishnu. I'm a data scientist at First Hand, and I definitely think that you should subscribe to the MLOps Coffee Sessions podcast. It's the best podcast out there to stay on top of what MLOps actually is, to talk to the true thought leaders in the space. And oh, by the way, Dimitrios is absolutely hilarious. What a weird guy. You should definitely subscribe to the podcast.
1: Yeah, you know why I think that is? Is because the, the value of the tool... In their like core value, it hasn't been proven out, and so they start to like grow, and then it mm-hmm. becomes bloatware because they're like, oh well, if we add deployment to this, then we know people need that, so that's like table stakes now. So we got to have that in our tool, and then oh, we'll just uh, you know, we we'll, we'll, we might as well put some monitoring on it too because we deployed it. Now we got to monitor it, yeah. and before you know it, it's like an end-to-end tool. And you started out with just some experiment tracker, and so <laughs> that's that's yeah. kind of I saw that literally at Dot Science when I was working at the company uh, back in 2019. It was really hard for the product team to recognize: Is it that what we have is not working, mm-hmm. and people don't want to buy that? Is it that we haven't found the right people to try and buy it, or that this is valuable for? Or is it just that we need to have more value propositions? And so they kept on like extending and extending the tool. And by the end of it, it's true that you get bloatware and you're sitting there going like, man, I just want this one thing to be done well. And that's it. Like you got one job, do your one job. And I also recognize like I had such a hard time trying to put together the the uh website for the mlops community the compare page for all those tools because i remember thinking like okay there's like this clear defined like etched out space which is monitoring right and then you go into it and it's like eh, it's not really that clearly defined and all these monitoring tools how can uh how can you compare them against each other or you're like, okay, well, yeah, then there's like this deployment. That's an easy one, you would think. But then I, you start digging into it and a tool would ask me, hey, can we get on the deployment part of the page? And it's like, we're an optimization tool, but we have deployment. So mm-hmm. does that make us, it's like they're, it's not their main value prop, but they are doing it. So then they wanna be part of this compare page. And so it just makes it really hard to gauge anything.
0: Yeah, monitoring. You, you mentioned it. It's, it's also one of these areas of this domain that really needs some fleshing out. I think. Uh, Somehow, I think like a lot of, or at least my my experience, right? And and this is of course limited, and I only see what I see. But um, for most ML cases that I do, or the, the ML is only such a small part of it, and there's so much software around it that's also important. And for some reason, all the MLOps monitoring tools forget that, maybe? Like, they forget that this whole software stack around it also exists and needs to be monitored. And if there's something I don't want is is monitoring in different tools, right? That seems horrendous. Mm -hmm. And then can I get my data out of, you know, monitoring tool XYZ into prometheus or splunk or whatever i'm datadog whatever i'm using um well generally the answer there is no because there's no there's no default interface um yeah but it's tricky right and we're all just finding it out along the way and and as we go and uh, i do like that there's you know you see more and more good initiatives pop up and you, you as long as you make a conscious decision of what you want to invest in and what you want to use, I think it's there's like a lot of good tools out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious from your perspective and on the
2: bringing it back to like what you're doing with your company on the consulting side. How do you make those? How do you go about making the decision of what technology you recommend this company to use? Um, and and, and like kind of we've already been thinking about it, right? Like, what do I have to do to get out of it, Out of it. But I would love to hear what's your thought process, especially mm-hmm. given that this space is moving really fast and there's lots of you know like this tool does everything this tool does only one thing um i find people have lots of different opinions on what's best here what 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 makes sense my thing is it probably depends on the client right but i'm curious like from your end how do you bring some sort of standardization to a very chaotic uh space
0: I do. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, I wish I knew. I we don't have a lot of standardization with our clients, unfortunately, because nothing is ever greenfield. Right. We yeah, have clients yeah. on on premise. We have clients on GCP, on Azure, on AWS. Um, their offerings vary wildly in quality. I have to say, um, like there's some toolings I just don't want to touch from each of them, and there's some toolings that are great. Um, what we like the one bit of standardization that we do tend to see is is kubernetes i mean that seems to at least in in the larger organizations seems to have done quite well um and that gives a lot of options then again like how a cluster is configured varies wildly again like with or without a service mesh with or without default monitoring um Cluster per team, cluster per company, cluster per use case. Uh, so that part is still, yeah, very, very different all over the place. Um, in terms of, yeah, I think I think I already kind of said it, but in, in terms of how I advise tool choices is uh, sort of through a regret minimization process, or at least that's how I try to think about it. I don't go for the thing that has the highest... Exp- like, the highest potential payoff or the highest expected payoff, I sort of err on the side of caution and think, okay, what is the thing that we're going to regret the least three years down the line? And that's generally the tool that has good APIs and good interfaces that we can migrate away from and, and doesn't do anything too wild. Um, very often, for the companies that we work for, you know, it's also not like they have uh, hundreds or or more diverse models right it's it's mostly a handful or it's like one model but scaled to a massive massive scale for the latter category there's no off-the-shelf tooling i think at least i i haven't found anything so you pick what you can like you pick your monitoring system to make sense you pick your you know you you run on containers and you do you do all that stuff right um, but the management tooling around it you build yourself for the other part, you know, the handful of containers, you can get away with just good CI/CD pipelines and hmm. Prometheus, um, plus you know, some kind of tracking model tracking or experiment tracking framework that comes off the shelf.
1: Do you notice a difference between the type of data that you're using, like if you're dealing with structured data or tabular data, and then audio or images, video? We
0: haven't done much audio. Uh, I, I would say most of our use cases are probably still structured data. Um, the use cases that aren't are, are images. So we do we do interesting projects for, um, for, for for example, the Dutch Harbor and, and the Dutch Railway. Well, not the, the yeah, the Dutch Railway Managers. So not the company that runs the trains, but the company that actually owns the, the tracks. Um, I think those are generally less organized in a way um there's a lot of just azure blob storage with a whole bunch of stuff on there that people accumulated over the years um you see like uh, we've built a couple of just you no know, small command line tools that manage annotations for these kinds of these kinds of problems um but those are also always those were always built custom because it was you needed custom rulings, like, hey, which kinds of annotation sets could we merge together, and which can't we merge together, and which should have priority if they conflict. And there, there were some interesting, interesting little things that we ended up being building ourselves there. Um, do we see other differences? Um, you see more experimentation, I think, with a lot of these image-based, non-structured data sets. Um, very often, for the uh, for the structured data, you very quickly get to a result that's just good enough. And then you, you build it, you run it, and then it's, you know, you might iterate over it a couple of times, but it's very, yeah, it, it's closer to done soon. Whereas for the image cases, yeah, it's been much longer experimentation phases. Also because the training just takes longer, I guess.
1: Well, going back to what you were talking about earlier and how you're looking at when you go into companies and you're saying, what is keeping us from getting this into production tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What are some of these big barriers to getting into production?
0: Yeah. Um, very often it's manual validation steps, right? We need people to look at this this output. We need to go through uh, through the code to make sure it works, Um, you need to ask stakeholders that are unavailable for the next three, four weeks to see if they agree with X, Y, Z. And, you know, that's that's all that needs to be done like already before we can even start about thinking about deploying it, right? And then deploying it means, well, yeah, this data source changes, so we need to change this upstream data pipeline, but we don't really have yeah, we don't really have a process or we haven't really thought about backwards incompatible changes. And then you know, we have to be really sure that it works because if it breaks, then it's then it's just broken and, and there's no way to roll back, for example. Um, so that that type of, you know, the interfaces between between different data jobs or different teams even are very often not really clearly defined and there's definitely not a deprecation path uh set up it's a that that is a, a common cause as well um and well you still see uh very often that that especially data science teams consist of data scientists who just don't necessarily have experience with infrastructure or with running things in production anyway so it might be that things have to be rewritten a lot um which is always something that is uh you know, a r- horrendous thing that needs to be changed uh, as soon as possible. I think that might be one of the biggest reasons for a lot of larger companies,
2: at least. Yeah, those are some really common ones, and, and I I've seen them myself. I, I want to piggyback to w- something you said earlier about kind of the, the question of like how do you go about you know thinking about standardization. I'm curious, <laughs> like the, specifically with respect to how do you leave the client in a good position to continue maintaining this maybe Mm -hmm. extending it and uh you know like how do you how do you leave them in a good position um i find that that's also really tricky too it's like what can i like how do i educate them how do i onboard them to this how do i you know make sure that when i leave everything is good um
0: what what what, what's your experience in that area well that that's sort of the beauty of our business model we we leave behind the people that know Um, so very often I didn't really have to deal with a lot of these, these handover problems because I worked together with the consultants who will stay at the client at the end of it all. Um, but that's a bit of a cheat answer. I think the real answer is, is automate as much as possible, right? Everything that's automated is sort of safe for handover because it's written down in code. that code gets run very often. And if code gets run very often, you... Never really end up in a state where suddenly it's completely foolbar. I think that's really good. Like,
2: yeah, automating things so that it's like defining code, not defined by some manual process, right? That only, you know, this this one random person knew. Uh, but also like, what I was gonna, I had a similar thought that you were you that you said, but I just forgot it. I think it was oh, um, you that you stay with them, right? Or they stay with the company. In the yeah. case where, where they don't, um, how do you go about not, Not I guess this is something I, I've encountered, t- automating too much. Uh, maybe it seems like the safe bet, like we're running everything via CI cd but we could be doing something automated, but in a bad way, like doing something bad continuously. And I know that's, that's maybe it's a bit harder to answer in the general case, right? Because it usually depends. But there is some tension, I believe, between wanting to automate a lot of stuff and i think this comes from the influence hmm. of the software engineering side versus the data science side is like hey this is research this is pretty raw i need to iterate on this uh you know they're more hesitant to just run everything to 10 because like you said there's a lot of times manual validation involved uh lots of like i guess analysis that's required and maybe automating that yeah. sounds good but may actually cause more harm so i guess yeah. the question is how do you Right. How do you deal with that when you're, when, when the consultants come across that, come across Yeah,
0: that? no, I think that's a, it's a really good point that you make. You don't, you don't always end up in a situation where you can validate your model automatically for a hundred percent. And you, you probably shouldn't even want that most of the time, especially if you're starting out with something. Um, but there's still ways that you can facilitate it in an automated way. It, it, very often at less technically mature clients, I end up doing the retraining completely in, in like CICD systems and it, it opens up a pull request to a repo somewhere with a report in there saying, hey, this is what the model did. This is how it got retrained. This is how it compares to the previous iteration. Um, if, you're, if you're okay with this, press approve and it will go to, it, it will deploy, um, right? And then someone gets a notification and they'll, you know, they'll know how to look at it and they know what they look at because they've been looking at it for the last n times, like the last, for the last six months or something. It uh, doesn't even have to be a technical stakeholder at that point. I see. You. There's there's lots of boring
2: stuff that we can automate uh, yeah. to protect us, right? And it doesn't have, yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, we don't have to automate everything, but there's definitely a lot that we can. Yeah. There's like low <laughs> hanging fruit, so
0: to speak. Yeah, and it's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, this is a really good platform to start automating on. Because if you sit next to that that stakeholder and you ask him every once in a while, hey, what do you look at when you validate this? He says, oh yeah, I look at whether this thing is bigger than that thing. Oh, well, but that's something that we can automate, right? And you sort of start, yeah, start automating more and more based off of what you got as as feedback.
1: Well, I find this idea fascinating too, because it's like, Where do we want to have that human check come Mm. in and you're really designing things around that and you're designing what is automatable, if that's a word, and then what is not and what really needs a human there. So Mm -hmm. that kind of hard thought that needs to be put into it is an interesting design problem.
0: I agree. Yeah. And it's often, I often get it wrong at the beginning as well um it's not something that i can go at a client and and i I can't really guess how well automatable a model release is going to be um i've learned to err on the side of not automating those kinds of decisions but automating the process and just giving them a report and, and literally sitting next to 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 the stakeholders like hey yeah what are you looking for what do you want to know out of this um try to bring those things up to the front and then come back every once in a while hey what do you look at what don't you look at Mm -hmm. try to keep iterating on it um so yeah
1: i've got a few rapid fire questions i want to hit you with because we're we got to wrap up this has been awesome first rapid fire one is going to be a softball what was the last book you read
0: um the last book i read was rhythm of war from brandon sanderson fantasy novel from the Oathbringer series oh nice. the last technical well the, the last technical book I read was um O'Reilly's Database Internals ah. which is uh, definitely should be on anyone's list who's interested in uh, in that sort of thing I found it a really fun
1: read all right I like that I haven't heard of that one yet but I'm gonna go check it okay. out uh,
0: it's, it's a good one
2: yeah, it's a good book. I have that one. I read. it. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, but that one and what's the other one that's like a, a standard for data engineering? The yeah, the data intensive applications one. Yes,
1: oh, that so one. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. That those two are like the go-to yeah. ones for me. Yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, what piece of technology are you bullish on right now that might surprise people?
0: Oh. Huh. That's um. I don't tend to be very bullish on technology, so maybe uh, maybe I'm the wrong person to ask. What we'll is talk technology to us about I'm that. bullish on? Um, right. That's.
1: that's about, let me, What about let like me containers? rephrase it? Yeah. What?
0: Yeah, but containers won't surprise anyone, right? <laughs> yeah. <and> our, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, containers and, and Kubernetes and those kinds of things of course all are super obvious. Hmm. Um like Prometheus Grafana is also super obvious, of
1: course. <laughs> um, Well, th- now how about this? Just what's something that you're bullish on just in general? Right. Oh um
0: i think python is gonna stick around for a while um i've been using go more and more i'm not sure if it has a really good place in the ml ops space yet um, but i wouldn't be surprised if it could carve one out uh-huh. it seems similarish enough to python to be learnable by a lot of python devs but then infrastructure ish enough to be useful for for scaling, so maybe maybe Go is the answer here.
1: Nice to so go. On. All right, last one for you. How do you want to be remembered, man?
0: Oof. Uh, I I hope I don't have to be remembered for a for a long while. Uh, do you mean for the podcast or for <laughs> in, in life, life general in life. life? Um, so. Well, one of the beauties about my job is that I, I interact with a lot of people who go through a very large development step in their time with us. They get a lot of training. Uh, I think our trainings are, are good. Um, they involve a lot of these kinds of discussions, uh, which is also a lot of fun. Um, so I like it when people, people, especially Older, coll- old coll- ex-colleagues remember me as, um, you know, yeah, Matthijs always, when you came up with a quest, when you come up with a question, he always either has an answer, can think of an answer, or will get back to you with something. And that will always help directly with what I've been doing. Um, that's something that I've always, you know, liked to get as feedback, of course, because hmm. it's, uh. Just that impact that you can have in people's working life is, uh, is pretty great. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great thing to be remembered by.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah a great mentor. Also, that is uh, awesome to be able to work with you. Um, is a privilege that many have. So this has been cool, man. I appreciate yeah. you sitting down and talking with us. I really I really thank enjoyed you.
0: it. Thanks for inviting me. This was uh, yeah. definitely yeah. a lot of fun.
1: And yeah. we I will have, catch... I one question yeah, before go. we do
2: go, if that's okay. Uh, uh, what is what's something that's top of mind that you would like the audience to think of before they leave? Uh, maybe uh, uh, something that you're working on, something that's upcoming, anything.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, there's there's quite a lot upcoming. We're doing um, we're doing PyData meetups in person in Amsterdam again, so that's coming up. Uh, ML Ops meetups. ML Ops community meetups. meetups in person coming <laughs> up soon. Um, PyData London has a conference somewhere in June as well, which is supposed to be a lot of fun. Um, If people are interested in scikit-learn and monitoring models and Prometheus specifically, uh, I would love it if they could get in touch. I've been starting uh, a small open source thing that should make it very easy to get some basic metrics out of scikit-learn pipelines. Um, It's not, yeah, you know how it goes, right? Just start an open source thingy and then it kind of, you know, just lies there for a bit waiting until you, you really have time to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone's interested in that, I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, discuss and spar and maybe collaborate. Um, Excellent. Yeah, I think those
1: Super helpful. Thank you so much. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, it was such Thank a pleasure. You.